Welcome to Inside the Four Walls. Sports nutrition, active nutrition, and lifestyle nutrition is our world. It's changing, it's adapting, and it's evolving at a pace not many of us had anticipated. And we want to know more. I've learned over the years that some of the best insight is derived through conversation. And if you truly want to understand the dynamics of the market, you need to look beneath the surface. You need to ask those from within. So that's what we're doing. We talk to people from within the industry, those that have opinion, those that have been at the coalface, and those that have been there and done it. So buckle in and enjoy the ride. I'm Nick Morgan, and this is Inside the Four Walls. Welcome to episode 16 of Inside the Four Walls. And today we have Dr. Mark Tallon of Legal Foods because we want to get stuck into the regulatory aspects of our industry, certainly within Europe. In some respects, many of you will think that sounds a little bit dry and maybe we're going to talk about just nutritional health claims regulation, but that's absolutely not the purpose and it's absolutely not the case. Mark is one of the leaders in his field. He, from the outset, is very practical focused and solution focused about how we navigate the regulatory and legal landscape and where the opportunities lie. How can we do better and how can we take a different view or lens to maximizing the communication opportunities available to us. There is no better person in the industry to do this. I think Mark does a great job. And of course, within that, we are gonna talk about some really interesting areas such as on whole claims and also CBD, which is as it stands today by date, a very topical topic. So with that, I'm gonna leave you in the capable hands of Mark as he takes us through the opportunities that lie in the regulatory world of nutrition. Mark, welcome to Inside the Four Walls. It's Monday morning, so we're going to hit you with a highlight of the week already. How are you doing today? Thanks, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, pretty good. I was I was like Monday. Uh, it means that I'm feeling refreshed after the weekend and um, yeah, ready ready for sort of a new week, some new challenges, and it's interesting times for sure. So. Yeah, yeah we're going to get teeth into. Yeah, we're going to get stuck into some of those interesting times. As I as I look on you on on Zoom, behind you is a big sign saying uh, "Legal Foods," which is the name of your business. Um, this topic area is going to cover lots of things that come under sort of the legality of food, food law, and regulation. I just actually be really useful as a starting point. Just maybe how you define the difference between food law and the regulations. Um, that a lot of people within brands and innovation have to deal with and, and what the deal is or what the difference or definitions are that you would describe it as? Yeah, I think um, I think the confusion comes between what the law is made up of. I think that's probably the way to look at it. So you have case law, in effect, which is um, how a judge or a court case interprets um, a specific issue in law. And then we have in effect, regulatory law, which is the um, the legislation that covers a certain area. So for food, for example, we might have regulations. Um, so a list of codified issues um, that define what you can do um, in relation to making a specific health claim on a, a specific type of product. The same, we have a labeling regulation um, and people try and follow those specific regulations to come out with a legal product. And then after that, if there's something that's not clear, that's something that needs to be defined, 
and then ultimately there's a court case and that's the judge then makes the interpretation of what's in those regulations so you know that's and then obviously food laws of specific area um, that covers regulations um, but we also have obviously case law that sits around um, you know different areas so we'll have case law on health claims case law on novel foods um, case law on labeling and that's that's sort of where we try and provide guidance where we join those things together in effect so an understanding of what the regulatory requirements are uh, for a food company and then what is the interpretation of that from case law and that can be on a member state or a european level yeah. and um i've i mean this is not my area of expertise as as you know as does others but i find it really interesting the problem is most people discuss it or feel it's really quite heavy um maybe it's uh, they see it negatively um it's almost like it maybe inhibits what they're doing it always feels like oh what are we allowed to do what are we allowed to say yeah What's i mean overall feeling on people's approach to the positivity or negativity of this in terms of how it frameworks brands products innovation i think like any sort of area of um business and commercialization of a, of a, pr a product including a food product um it depends who you're working with and what their view is on how you bring something to market. Now, on the regulatory side, um, it's definitely said that we're the dream killers. Um, yeah, so, definitely. you know, guys like you come along with a beautiful marketing idea and then we have to shoot holes in it and say, you can't say that or you can't do that. Um, but I don't, I don't view food law um, or regulatory law in, in that context. So for me, when I look at a, a product, it might be because I've got a slightly different background and we can have a chat about that is I'm a, I provide a risk analysis service, my company, that's, that's what we do. So we advise the company, look, you wanna say this about a product or you wanna hold a product out for sale in this way or what you wanna do an advert like this. This is ultimately what the risks are if you use that type of advertising or labeling on a product um, or those ingredients and what the potential fallout could be now that can be different across obviously all the different member states um, in the EU because they have a different perspective. And I should say, obviously we cover European food law as well as obviously now UK food law post Brexit. Um, and, and we try and give them a practical um, approach, not to say, don't say that, but to say, yes, you can say that, but this is the level of risk. Um, and obviously there's what's defined in law in the regulation and what happens in real life and that's where uh, different different companies have a different risk um, thermometer. Some will be highly risky um, and some will be no risk at all. And that depends where they are in their actually company life cycle. And we could maybe talk about a few different companies and how they've moved as they've grown as a, as a company. What does that mean that you, I mean, what's the ideal? I mean, obviously, obviously you work to, to find how you receive briefs or projects. Does that mean that the ideal brief is saying, Mark, we want to try and achieve this vision. How do we achieve that within the, the constraints of what we're working? But how can we do that really well versus can you have a look at that and tell us whether it's right or wrong? Um, what you it sounds like you prefer to receive the others or that's the best way of working. Do you think that's how people do it most of the time or not? I don't know. I, I get a whole mixed bag um, in terms of the different clients that we work with. So we might have. Um, a well-established company that could have, you know, a billion uh, turnover, 
So, you know, a big, a big protein company, for example, might approach us and they've got a very defined project, but they've got an established brand and they're probably pretty low risk. And then you could have a startup that's never put a product on the market before, but has got a concept. So we recently had a, you know, a company that, that we work with um, that they were crowdfunded um, that a couple hundred thousand uh, wanted to launch their, their, their product or their concept for their product. And again, obviously, we were a bit of a dream killer uh, on that one um, because they had absolutely no background at all in food. Um, but then it's trying to say, well, what's what's the least damage, basically? How can we sort of give you something? Rather than saying, don't do that, we need to give them something back from the experience. So, you know, from my own side, over 20 years in this, this industry, working in the US and Europe, I try and put something back where we can say, okay, we might have to remove this, but we can retain that claim um, by putting this in the product, um, or we can flex the wording in this way. So you try and actually not, you know, you want to be a partner with the companies, with yeah. the actual marketing team. You don't want to just be sort of saying no to something. You're trying to find a best solution in a, um, in a team situation. Although you're an external consultant for that project, you should be an integral part of the company. Obviously, the longer you work with the company, um, the more then you can become... Um, have a better understanding of their commercial risk profile, what they're looking to do with the brand long-term. And that's, that's where we sort of try and fit in with the different, different client bases from different parts of the market. Um, and do you find actually that, you know, the startup that doesn't really have the background, almost whether they come with you and you, you know, like you said, you're almost having to come back a little bit restrictive, but you want to find the solution gets you to a still a, a better place anyway, rather than those that, are well-established and almost maybe entrenched in the way it's always been. I mean, are, are the startups ultimately helping you get to a better place and making new interpretations um, and finding new ways to, to creatively help create great products? Yeah, I think not just sort of startups, but international consumers or well, our businesses. So we do a lot of work with US companies and ultimately that's where I sort of cut my teeth in the industry as it were, working with US firms. Uh, very different market, but a lot of them, when they first start, the third country import, so they're just sent over here as non-compliant products until they build up enough steam in, in effect um, to then want to invest in actually making the products compliant so then they can legally sell the products um, through different member states or they've had some products stopped at, part, at the parts because of not being compliant as, as a usual one. Um, and... Now, those products are 100% most of the time not compliant, not only from a marketing point of view, but from an ingredients point of view as well. Now, we try to be upfront right from the beginning. So when we have initial consultation, it's to actually say, look, don't be scared when you get the feedback, um, you know, in terms of them us telling them, you know, you can't use these ingredients or you can't use these claims or you know, simple things like, you know, about, about burning fat off a certain, you know, the rate or amount of weight loss, um, these type of restricted claims, or there's a lot of what we consider medicinal claims over here come from the US. Um, so when we have to give that feedback, it's always sort of quite scary initially. Um, but again, we try and comfort them to say, look, these are the brands that we've worked with. Look how we've transitioned them into sort of a successful but, and obviously regulatory or, or legally compliant firms and how that's affected the company. Now, depending on what their initial rollout is, they might have 
um, you know, real interest in just one specific market. So say that, for example, is the UK. Now we've got certain regulations that are the interpretation regulations in the UK that might be very different from another member state. So, you know, in that situation, we can tailor something just for that market. But if you want something to meet three, four, five, six different member states, then that becomes much more of a complex project um, in terms of what restrictions you're going to have to put on, on those type of products. But it's one of education. If you can sort of break down what is relatively complex legal language um, and, and scientific interpretation and something that is you know, relatively bite-sized but makes commercial sense, then you can onboard you know, a business to say, right, let's engage in this process um, and, and make them, th the biggest worry is we're going to damage the brand. We're going to impact their sales because they can't communicate uh, the benefits of the product to consumers. And again, it's about where the gray areas, um, you know, to allow the most edgy claims um, for, that, for that company. And, and what is ultimately the enforcement side of things, you know, where does that fit in that member state? So they can take a risk decision. Um, you know, companies like Grenade, for example, when those guys started and, and Al, I'm sure he won't mind me, you know, talking about them as a company. Um, you know, they had claims like thermodetonator and, you know, let's have a war on fat, um, you know, with quite interesting ingredients in those products, you know, the hand grenade when it first started. But that risk ultimately, um, you know, has paid off. And now we look at them as a much more mature company, you know, private equity investment, um, you know, and they've, they've shifted away from that niche, you know, bodybuilding, you know, physique type market to a much more mainstream market with their carb killer bars and things like that, where, you know, it's less about claims, but more about, you know, a positioning, a brand awareness, um, reaching a you know, broader base of consumers. Um, so you can transition from someone that's relatively high risk um, into low risk, but it depends on obviously, again, what, what the company does at that, at that point. And we've seen that, you know, with companies that you've worked with, you know, when you, with GSK, you know, how Maxi changed, um, you know, from Maxi Muscle to Maxi Nutrition, just the name itself, you know, there can be quite big changes in a company depending on the, the, the owner is at the time and, and how mature it is in it within the, the product cycles. And what, one of the, I mean, a true essence across all of that is about communication and particularly around the combination of products or new product innovation and so on. Um, and I suppose you, you refer, it, it, for most people around nutritional health claims across Europe, um, do you think, and we, people know what it is, I, I would hope, and if you don't, please go and make sure you read up about it if you're in our industry. Um, do you think it's res been restrictive to innovation? Do you think it's been a good thing, a bad thing? What's your opinion on it? Ten yeah, years on. My, Ten years my, on. Yeah, my, my sort of opinion has definitely evolved over, um, well, it's 14 years. That's how old the regulation is. Wow. So, you know, it's it's not new. Um, I seem to remember it was the 10th anniversary, like it was yesterday, but it's actually 14 years. So it's been about for a long, long time. Um, now, ultimately, obviously, when it first came out, I was probably only six years into, you know, being involved in, in this career. Um, so... I would say I was still probably relatively near naive in, in terms of what regulatory compliance is and what the risks were. Um, and it was always about, let's be 100% compliant with the law, or at least the interpretation of the law. Um, and that's evolved for sure um, since then. 
and initially, um, you know, worked with you know companies like you know former guests you've had on like Jason from PhD, and at that point I was super concerned about all the claims that were made on products and, uh, but but I, even then I sort of still was looking for gaps um, within the regulations of of what we could say. Now initially, we thought it was going to be enforcement. Um, everyone was worried. Everyone started to tighten up their claims. Um, you know, we're going to get products removed. We're going to get fined. Um, so everyone just shredded the, the marketing on park and on advertisements, waiting for this regulation to come in. And then we were sort of six months, 12 months down the road, 18 months down the road. And there was almost no enforcement. And we, so obviously we had companies that we'd advised comply with the, the legislation who were now actually being damaged mm-hmm. for being compliant when you still had companies making fat burner claims, you know, or, um, you know, lose X kilograms of, you know, of body weight or, or pack on 10 pounds of mass, you know, the, the, the old fashioned um, down and dirty sports nutrition market as it used to be back in the day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's at that point, I thought it was going to be a great thing because it was going to make it totally clear uh, because pre you know, the health claims regulation, it was quite simple to get a claim approved, even if you would challenge someone by like um, the the ASA, which is sort of a self-regulatory body in in the UK that um, makes a, an assessment of claims, for example, if, if they're online, um, you, you just need to submit one or two um, peer review publications that showed your ingredient at X dose delivers a claim defect. So you had claims on green tea, for example, and yeah and thermogenic um, and those could be supported. So, you know, uh, you know, back when Zeph and Maximus were about, those were the type of claims we could support on, on their products. Um, but, it, you know, thermoball and, and all this, you know, you, you, and then it changed after the health claims regulation. Um, and we thought it was sort of going to be a maturing in the market. And that didn't really occur. Um, and it still hasn't occurred. And I think the biggest damage from the regulation is, is a restriction in um, innovation, but specifically to ingredients, because if you can't talk about an ingredient, unless it's got a massive awareness, like the CBD stuff, which is we'll talk about later, maybe, um, how do you communicate the benefits of that specific ingredient to the consumer? Well, the only way that people can do that now is to fortify every single product with a vitamin and mineral so remember, we've got 230 claims that we can use in Europe. Maybe it's 80, 90% are on vitamins and minerals. So everyone just bangs in the vitamin and mineral because they actually want to use the claim. But it's not for the vitamin and mineral. It's for another ingredient. Yeah. So you could have glucosamine in there, but you'll make your joint health claims off copper, vitamin C, vitamin D, calcium. But the consumer recognize that as from glucosamine. But we'd rather not put those vitamins and minerals in. But we need to if we want to actually communicate the benefits of the product which is, that is the biggest issue um, for me in terms of the health claims regulation. Yeah, it's almost solved. Well, let's assume in one sense it does solve a problem. It, it stops people, you know, communicating something they shouldn't. But in the flip side, it's not really stopped them using it. They're just then starting to use a whole lot of vitamins and minerals and, and adding them in, which I suppose stops one problem, just causes another, because then you almost have this backwards sort of back engineering of innovation, starting with well, what what claims can I make based on what vitamins and let's throw them in to surround something else. It just feels a bit, it feels, I don't know, it feels really, really odd 
But you also get some funny interpretations of those. So let's say um, energy yielding metabolism <laughs> ends up on a weight loss product, which I know there's had a few, I think maybe the ASA and a few others have, have, have ruled against that. Maybe you can confirm that. But you start to get some funny interpretations of even what those claims mean. Now, where, where's the lay of the land on, on some of that? Yeah, I mean, the, the ultimate thing about the health claims regulation is it shouldn't be false ambiguous or misleading that's what it that's what its goal is supposed to set out to be and it's supposed to harmonize the internal market so you know what's used in one member state should be used in all the other and it shouldn't be you know false um, ambiguous misleading um but then the the interpretation is what is misleading so if you have a health claim you have a specific amount of wording in that claim like you said supports normal energy yielding metabolism what does that actually mean to the average consumer? Now, if if we use something like boosts energy, um, well, boosting energy, that's not normal energy. So you can say then you've exaggerated the claim. So is that then misleading? So that that's one of the issues. Um, but if you just use the term energy, is that enough then to inform the consumer? So we found, again, so case law, for example, has interpreted that. So, you know, last year we had um, a case that now says that we need to link the claim with an asterisk to the flexed wording. So the flexed wording, for example, is something that's consumer friendly or under understandable from the official wording. So, um, so, you know, supports normal energy yield and metabolism might not mean that much to the consumer. But if we use energy, for example, just on the front of pack, a little asterisk, then we put the full name on the back of pack then that meets the requirements of the regulation. So it means the consumer is not misled. Um, we've used the official wording of the claim, but they now understand that it may, means something to do with the product delivers energy and they can see what ingredient delivers that effect. So it's again, it's like you need to sort of put your commercial hat on how to communicate what is a relatively complex health benefit um, for the average consumer into something that's usable on pack. And that's, that's sort of what we we still struggle with because different member states are going to decide how flexible you can be on that wording. So energy on the front of pack might be okay in one state, but maybe is it's not enough in another, maybe it's normal energy is it is what you need in another member state, or maybe you need almost, you know, vitamin C for normal energy. It becomes quite complex, but that's an experience thing of being able to deal with regulators and things like that. Which almost means, and it also refers to a couple of things you said, already throughout the podcast is that um, mutual recognition just sounds like it's nonsense because you, you've mentioned already you, those coming in from the US going to one or two different countries, you know, there's different things. And, and it's there's some clear things like on caffeine in certain countries, but you're even talking about interpretation of, of that wording. It just sounds bonkers that, you know, that that's probably one of the probably most frustrating things maybe I would pick up. Is that is that probably one of the biggest challenges then mutual recognition across the member states? Yeah, so for, for those listening who are not involved in, in this side, so the mutual recognition laws or free movement laws um, it relate to basically a product being lawfully for sale in one member state should be lawfully for sale in another member state. So the reason that was put in place is, so for example, maybe it's in England, we want to, when we used to be part of the, the EU, we have no upper limit, for example, for vitamin C. But in France, for example, we have got an upper limit um, and other member states, we've got an upper limit. So providing, you know, um, you apply mutual recognition and the, and the ingredient is safe, 
then even if it exceeds, you know, the, the limits in that other member state, you should be able to still sell your product in France, providing it was lawfully for sale in the UK. Now, the, the issue with that is, like I said, is what does safe mean? Now, each member state can decide what they think is a safe level, um, but it's got to be based on real evidence. Um, it can't be a theoretical, you know, view that, oh, we think it's unsafe just because it's got to be based on some data. Now, EFSA, the European Food um, Safety Authority, which are risk assessors, a lot of people think they actually make laws, but they don't. They're just a risk assessment body. Um, but, but the opinions are taken seriously by legislators. Um, now, they could, they could have a view on what is a safe level, and we try and tag on to that to say, well, look, EFSA think it's safe. You're only, you know, you know one country. EFSA represents all of Europe, so their opinion should be more powerful. Now, the member state might turn around and say, F you, mate, basically. Um, we don't care. We're going to say this is safe for our customers. And then, then the business has got to make a decision. Do they decide that they want to get involved in a court case? Um, if they really want to have it on the market and not adapt to that individual member state. And that is a huge burden for businesses, especially if you're a small business. There's no way you're going to go to, to a member state court and then wait potentially if it's quite a, um, a difficult issue to resolve or where there's no already prior case law. It might then need to go to the European Court of Justice. That might be five, six year, you know, wait to actually get an opinion from the courts. Um, and, you know, just to go to sort of a local magistrate might cost you 40 grand. Um, you know, companies are not going to spend that um, to deal with, in general, to deal with those type of issues, unless it's quite a significant one where maybe they've already been involved in prosecution and they need to defend themselves. And that's how it gets into the court system. But in general, a company won't take that risk. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll change their formulation um, or they'll hire someone like us to advise them in advance to say, look, you could, you could do it. We know mutual recognition on these issues work, but on these other issues, it's likely that you're going to get some pushback. So we might want to change that. We might want to tweak that formulation slightly, or we might want to manipulate that claim. Um, where do we where do we stand on like actually? So the, the claims relate to so a, a nutrition claim has to be um, X amount to be able to claim it on pack, for example, or a health claim which is effectively related to benefit. So let's take collagen, where there's a claim on protein, but not on the collagen as a source. You can't differentiate between protein sources, but you could make a statement of fact, like collagen is the major protein source within connective tissue, which in some respects, in essence, tells you what the product's all about. Collagen is really important, but you don't necessarily go as far as to say, you know, what it's really doing. I mean, how, can you can you just continue to make statements of fact about and I think of others like you know a, a beta alanine for example about you know, what it's doing in the muscle for example are we where do you stand on being able to if you had like two sentences to describe a product you can almost write a lot of statements of fact that almost inherently broadly tells you why the product has been constructed in the first place where does that where does that sit in your book yeah so again I mean it's you have to look look back to the regulation and what it covers. So you, you sort of covered two different topics there. One is health claims and one is nutrition claims. So for a nutrition claim to be a nutrition claim, it has to be a benefit. Um, it has to be a beneficial effect. Um, so when does something become a beneficial effect? And again, this is the difference between 
consultancies that deal with regulatory law might just read that regulation and say, oh, well, yeah, it needs to be beneficial effect and think no more of it. And then those of us who look at case law, like myself, in terms of have we got anything that actually tells us what that means? So um, a beneficial effect, for example, could be something like, um, you know, a great source of, because that sounds, you know, beneficial to me. If someone says a great source of, if they just say 10 grams of, then that's just not beneficial or unbeneficial. It's just a statement of fact. Yeah. But you need to sew that into basically the romance copy on pack. So you'd never use sort of something quite bland, like 10 grams of something. Um, so your collagen example, um, yes, so you could use again, you could say a statement of fact would be collagen um, is, a, is a component of tendons um, or something like that. But it's what you would build around that um, so you obviously you've got claims on protein, support the growth and maintenance of muscle mass, and then you, how you flex that wording as well about that. So, you know, can you, can you flex that wording out? Does that mean recovery um, to a certain consumer group? Um, you might want to use things that are basically completely outside of the health claims legislation. So what about occasion for use? So you have teas, for example, that talk about sleep. Now we've got Yes, we've got some claims potentially on sleep with melatonin, but they're medicines in a, in a certain number of member states like the UK um, because it, it's considered a sedative. Um, but what about if you actually make a claim about occasion for you? So, you know, get your, you know, your bedtime tea for a relaxing drink of chamomile. Now, the consumer thinks the delivery effect of, of that product is to make you feel relaxed and help you sleep. But you're not making a claim about the product. You're making a claim about the occasion for use, that when you want to sit down, chill out, feel relaxed just before you go to bed. So it's how you basically escape the, the scope of, of the legislation to build a story, um, you know, based on the composition of the product, but also outside of that about which is the consumer group and how you're going to translate those benefits, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. What, for everyone listening... I mean, you worked with a lot of different people. What, what for brands who've done really well in your eyes that have really navigated this, this sort of and created really good outputs, and you know, but have been trying to be on the edge, you know, innovative. What, what would you just say defined or underpinned their approach to make them get to a successful outcome? So those that you feel have really got to a really good place, creatively, innovative. Um, etc. What, what's defined their approach better than maybe the ones that you feel are, are just not not doing well enough in terms of your experience? Um, it's quite difficult. That is a really difficult question because I think the, the issue is what market? Um, because different companies are successful on different markets for different reasons because although we, we're all humans, different countries, the consumer has a different view on products and how they want those products to be communicated. And there's restrictions on where those products can be communicated from, whether you could be limited to only through a pharmacy. Um, and again, interpretation, but I would say there's probably, it, it, a lot of it is, is how the industry's changed in terms of who's been successful and who's been not. So the barriers to entry now to the market are super easy. Um, you know, if, if you've got 20, 30 grand, you can pump out a nutrition company and start selling some products on Amazon or eBay, you know, um, you know, Amazon fulfillment makes it pretty simple now. 
Um, you just need to decide what a message is again and what your risk profile is. Um, but it's about the companies that seem to have done the best who are in it for the, the long term. They have a good understanding of what the actual the brand is from right from the beginning. So have, they have a strong brand. They know their consumers. They're not trying to reach every single market. So we see, you know, going back to the same guys, you know, um, you know like, like BSN, Maxi, a lot of the big companies that are about um, or even, you know, the, the early 80s for, from ES, you know, with, with their brands, once they were taken over by sort of private equity or, or bigger, bigger companies, um, the brands tend to dilute from their core consumers and that can cause massive issues. So initially they're a super successful company and then people think, oh, well, the only way to make that company grow is to go straight into mass. Let's do an RTD and let's sell it to everyone. Um, and then ultimately the car consumers eventually move away because that, that firm becomes, you know, one, if you want to be in the mass channels, you've got to be um, less risky in effect because they won't want to touch you if you think the next week you're going to be in the newspaper for selling, you know, a novel ingredient or potentially something that's killed someone. So, you know, you've got to sort of evolve as a company um, but you've got to try and retain that initial brand presence about, you know, what was the company about? What, what was its core aspirations? Um, and they've done the best, the ones that have been willing to engage with that process um, rather than sort of um, be static and be stuck with, you know, and willing to be flexible and move with how things have changed. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of companies, even distribution companies, so, um, Years, years ago, I used to work with a company called SNC Direct. Um, don't know if you remember remember that those guys. Um, they were massive, um, but they didn't move quick enough with sort of the you know the change to sort of online um, through you know from traditional channel, channels of um, you know using like Body Temple as wholesalers and things like that. You know that whole model shifted. Um, and if you tried to sort of stay with that and didn't move into digital quick enough and enough into digital, um, then those guys were left behind. And, you know, that's, that's really sad. And a lot of it is because of sort of the margins. And that's why we don't see sort of a body temple anymore. I think there's only maybe Tropicana that are about from that, from those days, um, you know, that, that whole way of bringing products to market has shifted. Um, and we need to think about that, but there's, Obviously, there's benefits of that in terms of regulatory. You know, it's quite easy to change something on, on a forum, on a website in terms of being non-compliant. Um, but if you've got product on shelf, trying to change a claim or something on a label is a whole different issue. Very, very expensive, lots of big runs, um, you know, MOQs on everything that contributes to that. Well, loss of shelf things. space is, is yeah. a massive one because, you know, if, if you're you know, sitting there and holding Barrett and they've got to remove you from a shelf, there's someone else waiting to take up that space. And the next time you could get in there is quite, could be quite a while. And the same for sort of Tesco and Asda, any, anywhere else, you know, you've, you've got to make sure um, that if ideally that you get a sell through and you, or you can stick to those products and that's cash and time and issues. So where you take your risks ultimately is it's got to be online. Um, you should really try and keep the, the actual product itself, the physical product um, that the, the customer, unless you're only sort of, you know, direct-to-consumer online model, then if you're going to sit on any shelves, then you need to make sure that those products, you know, are squeaky clean, really. But 
the transition or the segue to online is really important because we know it's growing. We know that people have moved on there. We know the big companies, B2C, have really disrupted much of the sport active uh, lifestyle nutrition market um, hugely in how they, they operate. Um, but it does create a lot of really interesting things. So let's just assume they, they have a greater license and flexibility in how they communicate things because it's super easy to change and actually presumably almost impossible to police because of the how do you police an entire online environment? The one question I must start with though is, is online navigation. So when you land on someone's website and the first thing people do is, you know, you shop by goal, shop by need, shop by what have you. And, and, and there's a lot of skill, there's a lot of build in that. Some very intelligent people are brought in specifically to work out how to do all that. Um, but it feels like, how do you find products? I mean, what, what firstly define what should people black and white be doing about the use of terms like here's our weight loss section or weight management section or um, nootropics section, for example. Um, and, and how is that possibly, I mean, is there, a, is there a good middle ground here for that type of um, area? Because some are, basically, are they implied claims? Yeah, I mean, for sure, the definitely sort of claims. Um, it's been discussed already, you know, multiple times with regulators. Um, but it's about enforcement and about proportionality, um, ultimately, of how do you not destroy the market? Um, and I think that's probably where the Brexit bit is quite interesting, um, where this divergence is opportunity um, to come up with a different framework. Um, now, these category categories that you talk about, um, you know, weight loss, uh, muscle building, even though those products might not have enough of whatever the ingredient is to deliver that claim, <clears throat> these are co considered within the framework of the regulation as generic descriptors. So there's a little section in the, in the health claims regulation that talks about these. Now, the examples that were given at the time were things like a cough drop um, would be considered as a generic descriptor. Mm. Um, now, to me, cough drop, um, it sounds like it does something for your cough. Um, and I don't see that as any different from being able to say, you know, weight loss or muscle builder. The effect is it's still a physiological effect, you know, of, of health, uh, even though the actual regulation itself actually doesn't define health, which is another strange one, um, given it's called the health claims regulation. So, um, but yeah, so generic descriptors, there was a, there's a route there where you could actually submit this. You can submit some evidence to say this has been used for years um, as a category definition the same as we've got a big one at the moment for obviously and we have for years for probiotic is that a category descriptor or is that a health claim now if we use that as an example my my view is it's a category descriptor um and initially none of the member states agreed with that um but now we've got italy we've got france we've got netherlands um you know um that that now agree that probiotic can be a descriptor um, of, of a category um, and that it is not, it's not a health claim. Um, so there is some movement uh, and there is some divergence there um, between different member states on where something becomes a health claim and when it's not. Um, and, and the reason these issues get caused is the European Commission, for example, might say something in passing in a memo, which doesn't have any force of law, it's just their view or in guidance, their view and then member states say, oh, well, the commission think you can't say this. So we're going to say, right, it's illegal to say this. 
And the fallout is massive. I mean, that's why we had like basically decimation of the probiotic industry. You know, everyone was started using terms like cultures, um, you know, trying to work out how do we communicate what a probiotic is. Um, but I think that we, we will get, I think we're going to get pushed back. I think there's going to be a change on the probiotic side, um, but I won't go into the legal bit of it. It's, a, it's relatively complex, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, pro, the probiotic one is quite an interesting one. Um, but I think at the moment it's tolerated. I think if you want to go by the letter of the law, then those are probably implied claims for everything that sits under that, that topic title and on shelf. Yeah. Um, but it's, like I said, it's, it's listed there. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a willingness to um, enforce um, over those issues. Although that, you know, it, yeah. So yeah, so I think it's tolerated, but it probably is actually probably a claim um, or suggests that all those products deliver that effect. Um, and until there's, until there's enforcement, until there's case law, then companies are gonna keep, keep doing that. Um, and in, in terms of enforcement and, and potentially self-policing, has the industry done a good, good enough job at self-policing? Do we all play enough of our own role in self-policing this? And actually, I, I'd probably ask a direct question to you and your views of do the retailers do enough in terms of if it's not D2C, the third-party retailers? Because presumably they can be such a great sort of barrier for, for some policing to some degree. Well, you know from our time at ESNA, um i'm a real got real headache about enforcement and I about see it on linkedin as well i see your yeah. views on linkedin as well so don't worry i know yeah. but it's a good topic <laughs> yeah so the enforcement side it really irritates me um and that's probably just because of the obviously the industry the, the side of the industry i'm involved in is where you know if a client comes to you and says tell me how to be compliant and they don't see consistency consistency in, in enforcement and that is the big issue consistency i don't care if there's no enforcement um but let's apply that to everyone or if there's going to be enforcement apply that to everyone you can't have a bit of enforcement so one one week we're getting someone with uh, you know making a claim on vitamin c but they've got not enough vitamin c in getting taken to court and fined and then we've got someone who's down the road selling psalms or you know some other ingredients that might be super toxic experimental medicines um and nothing's happening to them and that really sort of gets on my goat really um but as regards you know as an industry yes we've got you know we've got some bodies uh um that could take action that could bring about levels of compliance and it's in uh um you know the their memorandum when a company signs up to these trade associations about you know what things they should do so they should comply with all of the relevant regulations and we have some back-end bits for different you know associations where they say if you put a complaint in then we'll do something about it but a complaint goes in and then you look on the site and it's yeah the complaint's gone but another one's popped up somewhere else it's like whack-a-mole you know it's it just doesn't work and because the trading standards, the guys who carry out the enforcement have pretty much been decimated over the years, you know, I've been much smaller group now of, of what are experts in, in food law within the trading standard side of things. So these are the, the people that carry out enforcement in the UK. Um, you know, the, the ability to remove products, the, the ability to actually use government funds to take companies to court has been reduced. Now we do have obviously some situations where we have seen enforcement. So, um, we had like um, bulk powders, which are now bulk. Um, back in 2019, they had a hundred thousand pound fine. 
and 7K in court costs for infringements of the health claims and labeling regulations. But that sort of really is um, not the norm. You know, it's, there's very few cases like that where you end up with a big fine. And then you've got to argue, well, what is a big fine? So if we look at sort of, let's look at bulk, for example. So in 2019, when they got fined, they got fined 100K. These guys had revenues of 60 million in 2019. Um, well, I'm, if, if claims are going to make me grow my company and I'm only going to get fined 100K, but I'm making 60 million, well, that's a no-brainer. You keep making the claims. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, I've got, I've got to ask, this is something that just it comes to me now. So within this, though, what, what role do you play on non-compliance on a, on a genuine one? Because I suppose in some respects, you know what to say to people is or isn't compliant. And there's a lot of gray areas. But to be honest, like you said, I mean, you and I might look at each other and go, well, yeah, but that's an implied health claim. I mean, we could dress that up all we like, but it is. But at the same time, it is, you're going to say, well case law says this or this hasn't been that or here's those loads of people who are non-compliant so your risk management is this so you're basically saying that's the law but here's your risk profile i mean to some degree you know people are going to go out and be non-compliant maybe or push the boundaries how does that sit with you as a company sort of ethically uh, morally we haven't discussed this one as a question but i actually think it's a really important one to ask so yeah i mean there's definitely sort of an ethical position um and i mean I would class myself as relatively ethical um, with, within the industry. Um, you know, I've took some massive risks over the years of where I've been sued, you know, by, by companies in effect for actually, you know, saying this is a scientific fact. Um, and then, but not willing to sort of um, back down, even at the risk of bankruptcy um, over those type of things. Um, because I think that the truth is the truth. Um, but ultimately, you've got to have some realism about the market that you work in. And, you know, you again, like you said, you've got to you've got to provide people with the commercial side of things and for them to understand what the risk profile is of those products. And, and what I try and do is, is nudge a company to be able to say, look, we can still make the same message, the same communication, but we can do that in a much more compliant manner with only sometimes relatively small changes um, or fortification um, of a product or use of things like on-hold claims. Um, you know, we've got, we might only have 230 claims approved for vitamins and minerals and similar, um, but we've got over 2000 claims for botanicals. Um, so there's, there's a whole scope of things there that people, you know, my thing is, well, okay, this might be risky, but why don't we do this instead? So there's definitely other options for companies rather than just to say, oh, bollocks, we're just gonna, we're just gonna do it because we've only seen a couple of companies being fined. Um, what are two people who have actually ended up with prison sentences or disqualified from being a director? It's worth the risk for us at this point in our company's you know, life cycle. So let's take the risk. But you know, so my job is to say, look, this is this is what you need to do. And then it's for them to, you know, to implement that. Now we have other situations where we might have a client come to us and say, right, we want to do this. Um, we want to be co totally compliant, but we want to make sure with these other competitors, we're not disadvantaged. And at that point, then obviously we can submit complaints. Uh, we can talk directly to that competitor and say, if you don't remove those complaints, we're going to go to trade and standards. So you might have a 
you know, you might have a relationship with the Trade and Standards Authority called the Coordinated Partnership, and you put an official complaint to get those claims removed. Now that's time and cash, but some companies are willing to invest in us to do that, to actually make those companies stop using illegal commercial communications. Now it becomes more difficult, obviously, if they haven't just got one competitor, but there's 20, 30, 40 competitors yeah. in the market, then it's financially, it's not going to be something that we can achieve for them to, you know, we, we can't control the whole market. We can only control really sort of our client and maybe a couple of different instances, but we try and put them in a position where we can say, look, we can retain the claims at, you know, a lot lower risk and still be in an ethical position that the product, for me, it's about the product delivers the claim effect. So, you know, as long as it's got the dose in, then then that's the issue. That's the big issue for me. So, you know, one, one of the guys that brought me into the industry, a guy called Anthony Almada, might be worth getting him in. You, you might not be able to say much because he could, probably could just talk all the way through yeah. if you just give him one question. But, you know, his was proof before promises where you really should have some science to back up the efficacy of a product. Now, you know, and I know science is really interesting, but science doesn't sell a product. Marketing sells a product, how you advertise that product, how you connect with the consumers. And you can have, and there's lots of cases where there's, there's diddly squat in a product that actually delivers any effect, but people believe in it. You know, they invest in that product. If you go and spend 40 pound on a food supplement, I'm sure you're going to have a harder workout because you want to validate that, that expense. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if there's something not in there, but if, if you can do both, if you can actually deliver the claimed effect, even if it's not an, the ingredient with the health claim that delivers the effect, at least that's part of the efficacy of the product where you know you're not sort of fraudulently taking money off a consumer for a product that doesn't deliver the effect. Now, if we need to put a sprinkle of vitamins and minerals in there to help with that, help be able to communicate that benefit, then that's okay. Um, but ultimately, I don't own the companies and I know that to get out, but I've tried to give you their sort of a practical yeah. position, um, you know, for, for how we work with the, with the client. No, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. Um, and I think most of that makes sense. Um, I just, I, I want to- It'd be, it'd be like, so just to jump in there, it's, yeah. it'd be like saying, if you speak to a solicitor, why do, why do you defend criminals? You know, there's an ethical thing of, oh, well, I will just throw away the key. So, you know, what you, you're trying to actually do something, you're trying to actually, um, you're trying to action the law in the best way that you can. And, and that, that comes down to obviously providing the, the right guidance and the right steer, because it is complex. You know, we've, we've got hundreds of bits of different legislation. You know, some of them like the adult regulation is, is, is hundreds of pages long. The average food business owner will never understand all of these things. So we try and put it in sort of a, a simple way that helps them be compliant and apply the law correctly. You know, if, if I start talking about, you know, Article 10 out of 1924, 2006, you know, their eyes are going to glaze over. All they want to know is, can I put this on my product? If not, what can I do to maintain it? And, and that's what we try and do is com try and communicate something that's quite complex into something quite simple and commercially relevant. And before we segue then into CBD, one thing you did say really important is about the, the 2000 odds um, on hold claims or claims sitting around botanicals. And it's really interesting because I, I spend a lot of time working with um, brands and ingredient suppliers, as you know, and, um, and obviously nutrition and health claims comes up a lot. 
but I feel not nearly enough people talk about the use of on hold claims or claims associated with botanicals. And I, and I don't know whether it's because they don't understand it, they're not really aware of it, but I kind of feel like that one goes beneath the parapet a little bit. Do you, do you feel it's not leveraged enough? Do people understand it? What's, where's your, what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, people like simplicity is, is what ultimately it comes down to. Now, obviously for health claims, the ones that have been approved, you've got the health claims register, you click in a search box and you say vitamin C and it brings up your 12 claims or whatever it is or 15 yeah. claims that are approved for vitamin C. You know that's approved in law and that's really simple for, for the business to understand. Now, the unhauled claims, which are botanicals, um, a lot more complex. Um, vitamin C is ascorbic acid. It's a simple compound. I need to put that on my product. But if I say, all right, we put chamomile synthesis in, which is for me and you is black or green tea, yeah. um, that becomes more complex because what part of the botanical did you use? What type of extraction did you use? What is what is the dose? What is the botanical fingerprint? So what actives are in there? So things like um, ECGC, um, you know, how much caffeine? And does that relate to the actual claim itself? Um, and then have you got any peer review studies to back that up? So it's not just a case of saying, let's point to that study and say, that's okay. We need to generate some data. So as you know, my background initially was as a scientist. So I need to find some studies that support the efficacy of that claim and the dose in the product in a cost-effective manner. There's no point me telling the client, oh, well, if you want to make a claim on L-theanine, which is novel in synthetic form, which people get quite shocked at, if you want to do that as an extract from tea, you might need 30 grams, 40 grams to get an efficacious dose. No one is going to actually put or be able to put that in a tablet. I mean, imagine trying to swallow a 40 gram tablet. Um, so you could make it as a powder, but cost wise, it's impossible. So again, you need to sort of look at the botanical situation is it's more complex, but it's definitely doable. And going back to sort of the ethical side that you said before, I'd rather take a risk on a botanical where I know there's a defense and a possible solution to support a claim um, than actually just make any old claim that I want just because it's too difficult to not. Um, because yeah. we're sort of, you know, we've built our defenses around this claim. This Our product is, you know, it's, 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 it's pivoted on this specific claim and we need to have that for our product. And without it, we can't sell anything. So that's why the botanical claims come in use, but also why they're super complex because it's not just a click and collect. You need to be able to say, well, what's the ingredient? Can you afford it? Is there evidence? And are you willing to sort of do that amount of work to support the claim? But because no one else is doing that, there's a massive value proposition in that. You know, very right. few companies are using that. But if you can say, look, you've got turmeric, for example, we want to make some joint health type claims no one's making any claims about turmeric. You might have turmeric in the product. And like I said before, then they're banging in a load of vitamins and minerals. But imagine actually being able to talk about the real ingredient that delivers the claimed effect. That's unique. And how much is that worth? But again, it comes back to the, the horrible thing of how much has a company got to spend um, to actually develop a robust dossier to defend that. And that, that becomes sort of ultimately the bottom line. Um, and we can't give some legal certainty because no one can. You know, the, the get out of jail card is always only a, only a court can provide legal certainty, but we can definitely provide insight into say, well, you know, what's the chance of a prosecution happening? 
um, if you use these claims, because there's got to be a public interest um, and there's got to be a good chance of, you know, a trading standards officer taking a court case of actually winning that case. And where you've got these gray areas, that's quite a big decision for trading standards to make. Yeah, it's a really big one. I think the most important thing for me on that is that the potential differentiation, the USP, whether it's on the behalf of the brand or on the ingredient suppliers out there who can maybe go down this route and then obviously pass on this benefit to people. And what a great opportunity to do business. Yeah. I guess the thing for me, it's really interesting is there are some lovely botanical ingredients out there actually with some evolving platforms of, of evidence that, um, and you mentioned one term record, you know, the, the active component being curcumin or the curcuminoids is super interesting in, yeah. in, that, in particularly that area. Um, which does lead us into the last section um, on on CBD, um, which is just probably one of the most fascinating, bizarre, um, incredible, outrageous, any word you use in terms of market, because in some respect, it's just gone absolutely bonkers. Um, and I've never seen anything uh, move as rapidly and proliferate as many products, product formats, um, capture the imagination of a consumer um, you know I feel like more people know about it more than any other sort of maturation curve of other ingredients obviously it's linked um, I suppose to, to cannabis and so on and so forth so that's going to give something to it um, in the where do we stand today I mean we are the 22nd of March just before we go into some of the really nuts and bolts of it 22nd of march there's some big dates coming up do you just want to confirm and summarize those for me yeah so i think um so what we're talking about here is is ultimately um extracts from the cannabis sativa plant or the cannabis plant um now these plants have got over 600 um you know active components probably more than that but let's say there's 600 um and only one of those is cannabidiol, um, which is quite interesting that that one individual compound has been the focus. And that's ultimately because of, you know, where it came from. It was sort of one of the first ones that were held out is delivering some efficacious beneficial effects. So it really started sort of in the US about 10 years ago. There was a young girl who had Dravet syndrome, which is a, a quite a rare form of epilepsy. Um, and they started actually getting this product from a, um, a cannabis supplier um, who would make the oil for them. And it cut down massively. The, the young girl was, you know, it's five, six-year-old. She was having 30 seizures a day. And this sort of reduced her epileptic fits right down, um, you know, to maybe one a day um, or one every few days. Um, and then since then, obviously, we've seen a lot in the news, different parents who've got kids who want to take this oil. And that really sort of catapulted it out there. And then we have big companies like GW Pharma, who've then took that to a whole new level with their medicinal form called Epidiolex. Now, this is a, you know, to tell you how big the market is in terms of just from a pharma side, they were, you know, bought out this year for 6.7 billion uh, US dollars by Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Um, so it's a massive market. And if you think, you know, how many people, have epilepsy, but the actual company was valued at almost 7 billion, you know, the interest in compounds that can be actually taken from cannabis and deliver not a recreational effect, but a health benefit um, is super interesting. So that's initially sort of the background for the ingredient. And since then um, it's 
you know, we've always had hemp. We've always had hemp proteins, for example. For many mm-hmm. years, we've had help hemp proteins in the sports nutrition market. And, you know, I've never, I'd never even thought of things like the issues with CBD in the past. Um, it's only when it's become the, the, the novel foods issue, I know history of use prior to May 1997, and you need an authorization to put these products on the market. It's become such a sort of, uh, made it even more commercially aware that um, regulations are quite important um, in, in food law um, and what can happen if you're non-compliant. So in Europe, the European Commission sort of made a, uh, an opinion that um, all extracts, including ones that are high in CBD or cannabidiol, are novel. Uh, and then until you place it on the market, then you'll need an authorization. Um, that means putting together a big toxicology dossier, um, spend a lot of money on some trials, you know, looking at the order of maybe sort of 300 grand. Um, to do one of these studies. And then if it's approved, you can place it on the market. Now, unfortunately, the UK and other member states missed the boat in enforcement. And the market is saturated. You know, we have products all over the place in, in, in all different forms, food form, food supplements. We have CBD-infused tampons. You know, we have all sorts of weird and wonderful products, pillows with, infused with CBD. Um, anything you can imagine, you get CBD in. It's incredible, like creams, um, salts, chewing gum, drinks, everything. It's there. It's yeah. there. So it's just the you know the agro exposure to these products is is concern in itself. But if we just stick to sort of food, um, so the position taken by the UK, which is different from the rest of Europe, is that they would allow the products to remain on the market, um, providing they were for sale before February the thirteenth, twenty twenty, on the proviso that by well originally they were they wanted you to have a dossier submitted and validated that means validated means that you'd have a dossier that was checked to make sure it contains all the information relevant to make a safety assessment um so not the approval but just the validation part would be completed by the end of march now so we know this is in the real world, we've got new products entering the market all the time. Now, no new products should have been entering the market, but this has continued to happen and there's no enforcement, at least not in the UK. Um, and the ones that were existing on the market prior to February the 13th, 2020, have been scrambling to try and get some dossier put in um, so it could be validated and they continue, they can continue to sell those products legally, providing the they have a certain dose in, so they need less than 70 milligrams, for example, per day, which no one's putting in because that's too expensive anywhere yeah. um, at the moment. Um, and they have some warnings based on pack. This is for the UK market. So, but they had, you know, the UK had over 400 submissions, 400 dossiers in effect for them to assess. So they've been saturated with way too many dossiers. Not, I don't think they expected themselves to have that many submitted. Now, 50% have already been rejected. Well, they've got a lot of dossiers to get through, so they've shifted that deadline. So providing you can actually submit a dossier by the end of this month, um, not validated, just submit one, then you can remain on the market. So that's sort of where we are at the, at the moment for the UK. So once we get past the end of March, the UK FSA 
um, will then have on their website a page with all the companies that have submitted their dossiers and have been validated. And now that'll make it then obviously easier for trading standards to just look at that list. Is that company in that product, for example, validated? Um, if not, we can remove them from shelf. Now you've got obviously retailers like Holland and Barrett um, who are asking to be indemnified um, to make sure that the company has been validated and provide evidence of that. Um, I'm sure you've got it in other retail chains as well where they've started to stock them. I mean, even Tesco's is now stocking CBD products. So um, I hope that answers the question. That's where, that's where we are, at least for the UK. The rest of Europe, um, it's considered as novel, but it is tolerated in different member states. So who the submission of the dossier, who's, is, that, is that that each brand has to submit a dossier or the suppliers of the cannabidiol, the CBD suppliers? Where's that falling? Where's the onus? Because, it, it, I mean, obviously, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where so that, that, I mean, traditionally in novel foods, it would be the, it, you would normally think about um, the person who is, is normally has got the most to gain from place on the product, place on the market. So that could be, it could be an ingredient supplier um, or it could be a food company um, or it could even be sort of a third party manufacturer um, who's got access to the actual raw material data. Um, so, you know, where the canister was grown, what the extraction method was, all of that type of information. Um, but what we've sort of seen now, which is completely different the first time it's ever happened, um, is we've got consortium approaches because these things are so expensive um, we have sort of trade associations um, or individual ingredient suppliers that are funded by multiple food companies that have got cbd products they want to remit return on the market but they can't afford the 300 grand to do the submission so they might chip in 10 grand for example um, towards a submission with another 13 or 14 or 20 or 30 however many companies um, to put enough money together to do these toxicological um, assessments. Um, and that's, so it's, so we've got all mixed bag. We've got consortium approaches, which is a lot of companies working together. Um, some are by trade associations, some are by ingredient manufacturers and their clients. And then we have individual companies um, who are doing their own submission as well, um, where they've got deep pockets. Um, and obviously I'm working with a few of those. And what's your um, what's your best guess and how long it's going to take them to get through that that list and, and how do they priority which ones to look at first because presumably if they then go onto a list or they've subsequently approved do you've got a time advantage in fact there's one already approved so then people talking about the six weeks or seven weeks or eight weeks that that, that company in the UK has got advantage compared to everybody else and yeah I mean it, theoretically it should be sort of, sort of first come first served so as it appears on the list it'll have a date. And that's, that's the one I'll get this, get assessed in that order. Um, so, I mean, the only one that's been validated at the moment is a synthetic CBD. Um, and that's been validated at the UK and the EU level. Um, we had a whole issue about whether even extracts could be considered as foods um, because they do fall with, because they contain other substances like THC, <clears throat> which is a, a narcotic um, and pushes you then into the... Um, psychoactive substances side of things um you know is it is it is it a narcotic is it a medicine is it a food is it a psychoactive substance it can fall into lots of different areas depending on what the composition is because these these products are not just pure um cannabidiol unless it's a synthetic 
they have other compounds out of the cannabis plant, including things like THC or cannabinol, which are psychoactive. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, so that, that should be the order. It should be, um, you know, first come first served. Um, but I think timelines, we're probably looking at, my guess would be sort of May time, um, you know, for, for all the dossiers to be assessed. It depends how complex and how easy it is to reject those dossiers. Um, have you managed, is the one that's been approved, is, are they, can you access them? Can you read them? Have you had, do you have the ability, like, cause you're, you're a big, like go back and review case law and so on. I mean, have you been able to look at it, see the quality of it and, and, and decide whether you felt like it's surprising what has made it through. And I don't know, it might've been a great submission by the way. I have just no idea whether you had the ability to review it. Yeah. I mean, I know the guy who submitted it. So, but I mean, it's not publicly available. What you normally get is an abstract. Um, so you get an abstract initially available, but you can actually request some information um, through the regulations um, and that's going to change. It's going to become much more transparent. So from the 27th of this month, we have a new transparency regulation that kicks in um, and that allows uh, you need to do things like register your trial. So in the States, for example, we've got um, over 300 trials registered um, on clinicaltrials.gov um, over there um, on CBD and tells you how how interested people are, you know, 300 studies. Um, I mean, the, the, just the science, science side, I mean, 2005 to 2015, we had 900 papers that you could search for using the word cannabidiol, um, you know, in, in that 10 year period, we had the same amount just in 2020. Um, so the research interest alone is absolutely massive. And that reflects obviously the valuation of the market. And to be fair, probably quite rightly so. I mean, it really is super interesting, isn't it? I mean, yep. I, I think scientifically, what what's your what's your best guess then? I mean, in terms of this is a really tricky question, but in everything that's gone before, do you think CBD is going to be treated differently? Do you think it's just got such a heightened awareness and sensitivity that, in terms of the policing of this, is the process of which is going through conducive to therefore naturally there being a list of a yes or a no do, do you think we will actually see physical change in terms of what they were trying to achieve with this yeah i mean the, this this huge investment that's gone in from the enforcement side already um to try and put something in place i mean again different places have got a different view so ireland for example is already actually closing down um tea shops that are selling cannabis extract infused teas um, because any level of THC could be considered as a narcotic. And we have a sort of like a, a slightly different view in the UK of one milligram is okay per container. Um, but that, those narcotic regulations and misuse of drugs act are actually set up in place about um, having test kits sent to labs. So people that were basically drug driving, a lab would have to have to receive some of this THC um, to use as a standard in the lab. Um, and that's why the exemption of the one milligram was put in there. It was never intended. So you could have one milligram in some food, um, but it's been hijacked um, in that manner. So we're going to get a new regulation basically on amendment of, of the, the existing Misuse of Drugs Act to take into consideration of that. And the Home Office was in a meeting last week about that, that they're currently putting in place, um, or trying to put in place a regulation um, to actually give some additional flexibility and certainty to industry um, because obviously if you put a CBD product on the market and it's got any THC in it's impossible not to have no THC um, then you could be selling a narcotic and then it's off to jail for you mate so um, but that no one's gone to jail 
um, you know, in the UK overselling the product. So you could take that as a indication um, of, of what they're going to do with the product. But some products have got enough THC in. Um, so we've got a European system called RASAF, which assesses um, the incidence of products that are, that are sold across the EU. And there's 138 of these notifications where products contain too much THC um, in them. Now, some of them have got like three milligrams in. Um, now that's enough to get you high. So from a consumer safety perspective, that's like, that's one side of it. The other side is, is CBD safe and at what dose? So we have an estimated amount that's 70 milligrams. Um, but this is just lipophilic, so it gets stored in body fat. So the whole issue is what happens if you keep taking CBD, not for one or two months. So Epidiolex, for example, the drug is use it. You can use it. We know there's liver effects, but you can go, you get your liver checked to see if it's functioning correctly because you're under the guidance of a GP. Well, these are food products. You're not going to be going to your GP every month and saying, oh, can I have a liver function test? So what happens if it builds up in fat tissues over six months, 12 months, 18 months, continued use? What dose might be safe? Um, what's the turnover in the, in the body? So I can tell you for sure that it's, it's not non-toxic. Um, I can't talk about specific doses because that's for the client stuff, but it's definitely toxic at higher doses and it definitely builds up in fat tissues. Um, so people need to be super careful with the dossiers and the, and the consumer. All we need is one real bad effect from taking CBD products um, or for effects start, start to happen. So although, you know, they've been monitoring um, the market, we've seen no one become really ill. Um, unless you're taking sort of some other drugs in in um, in conjunction with that, um, then no one's become ill off the dose that, that's available. But I think as this market matures and the cost of CBD becomes a lot cheaper, um, and you can get much higher dose products, then we might see some issues. And again, agri exposure. We're talking about food, but people are vaping CBD. You know, people are, you know, they're using lots of different products, you know, body, body creams. So there might be dermal absorption. So how much you're being exposed to, um, you know, could be quite, quite a, relatively quite, quite a lot over time. So there's a safety concern there for sure. Yeah. Which is probably the one of the most important things people need to manage. I just, it's, it's like anything though. I, like you said, right at the very, very beginning about how much you've changed or learned over time. And it's just what we learn about ingredients and products over time. Like you, know, you could suppress it now, but you know, you could be suppressing something that could be, you know, really important to a lot of different people for a number of range of benefits. But at the same time, we need to need to be careful along the way. But sometimes yep. regulations and laws so black and white that I don't know whether you really get this natural to get this is i mean maybe it, it does allow for the natural evolution of this to get to a good place because we don't ever get good at compliance along the way and so on and so forth it's just it just feels so much richness in it but at the same time of course we need to be sensible um so I, yeah I, I, it'd just be really fascinating do you think it's possible to be a startup in cbd given all of this now um well, i think i think most of the companies involved in the cbd market are startups the mom and pap stores so if you go to well you can't go at the moment but in the past, when I've went to sort of, you know, conferences where we've had sort of um, presentations by white good manufacturers, um, most of the people in the audience have got full-time job. You know, this is their sort of on the sidekick of, 
you know, how do we generate some additional money? And they've got a little line of white good manufactured CBD products. They've got their own pop-up website. Um, and, you know, members they have invested their life savings to have these little companies up, up and running. Um, so, and I think that's why ultimately the government's taken a pragmatic approach because they realize that there's so many different people, you know, very, very, you know, micro startups that have invested in this project. But long-term CBD is just sort of like, again, it's one compound out of 600, you know, I think what we'll see next is sort of CBG, uh, terpenes, you know, yeah. it's super interesting, the whole issue of terpenes, you know, and, it, you know, for if anyone actually falls across this and they're not involved in the industry. So terpenes are the things that uh, make, make, make stuff smell quite nice. So your diffusers that you plug, uh, plug in the house, we've been sucking on terpenes for years. Um, now imagine having sort of a diffuser that delivers some health benefits as well. Um, so, you know, I think terpenes in terms of taking them orally is, is very interesting. There's only a few trials actually being carried out on these. Um, but I think, I think terpenes is quite a novel class. Um, you, you can get them from fruits, obviously, of course, as, as well as from cannabis. Um, and then there's a whole issue of the entourage effect. What about with all of the natural, those 600 compounds in there in different ratios, do they work better together as a, as a complete system? Um, rather than actually just isolating out one single compound of those 600. Um, and that's, that's ultimately where the novel foods thing is going to be very, very difficult because no one's going to get a full hemp extract approved. So at the moment, we're sort of limited to maybe one, two, three or four different cannabinoids in, in these submissions. Um, but over time, we might be able to get obviously more complex products with more actives that might deliver this entourage effect. There's no, there's no data to prove that this entourage effect exists. It's just a theory, but it's a nice feeling because people want natural, um, you know, you're selling a natural product uh, rather than a, a synthetic. And I think that, I think that is something really important as, as one of our final points is, um, cause I did speak to some good friends uh, recently, uh, researchers um, talking about this, but in the area of protein actually, <clears throat> and in my very simple comparison, which, some other scientists might shoot me down. It's basically the difference between consuming a single amino acid versus a whole protein or a whole protein source where collectively they just seem to now say that even as researchers, the, con the consumption of the matrix of the whole food, where there's lots of other things going on, just is more, just feels better, seems naturally to have more greater benefits and, and so on. And, 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 and when you go back into evidence and you're trying to look at you know, a single ingredient or a single amino acid or a single substance, I mean, it just feels it just feels intuitive that an entourage effect is probably something really interesting for the future. I mean, yeah, I mean, my my old PhD supervisor, uh, Roger Harris, who's the guy that brought creatine and betralanine to the market. He his his view was he always used to look at things like what was involved in the normal dietary experience. So by that is what have we been exposed to in the history, you know, of, of the human race? What what have we adapted to? Um, now we've we've not adapted to being exposed to single isolated substances. We get exposed to foods. Um, you know, protein doesn't come out of the ground as as pure whey, or you know, from an animal is just you know it, it gets processed. And the same as all the different proteins that we take out. Um, now, is it beneficial to sort of extract and manipulate those compounds in a, in a certain way? Now, there might be certain conditions where you've got disordered metabolism or you want a specific claimed effect where those could be beneficial. 
but in general it's the the whole movement to sort of a whole food approach to how the body works and if the how the food matrix works together although it might be more complex is probably more beneficial to the body but but if we apply that thing to actually cannabis we've probably not been exposed to cannabis as a food source um, you know, it was a weed and it was used as a fiber source uh, to make ropes and textiles. Uh, we've, you know, we used to, we, we smoke cannabis, but that was relatively recently, you know, in human history. So we've probably actually not evolved that well um, to actually use cannabinoids um, in our systems. And that's why we might be getting some toxicity issues because we've not de- evolved a mechanism to defend our bodies against using these type of substances. So that's why we need to be quite cautious about how much we use. Um, it's different when you've got a medicine like Epidiolex, where you've got the trade-off between someone having 30 fits a day and the harms potentially of liver issues with CBD. We're looking at, you know, our, our day job is the, the general consumer, the general healthy consumer. And we want to deliver them something that, you know, delivers a beneficial effect, not a medicinal effect, not, not a narcotic effect, unless you change careers. Um, you know, we want to give them a food effect and that's where we need to sort of draw that, draw that out. Um, I'm conscious of time. So one of my last ones, um, probably very open and vague question, but what in this area particularly, and let's just keep it to the UK, what do you think the landscape looks like in 12 months time if you had a crystal ball? Yeah, I think maybe a handful of companies that have had approvals. Um, a lot of companies, including probably trade associations being found out um, that they've been selling the dream. That's actually not achievable. Um, there's a lot of lobbying going on, um, which I don't really like, but, but ultimately, um, yeah, I think only a handful of companies that have been approved. And then we're probably going to see a pivot, um, a pivot to sort of other cannabinoids. Um, I know at least two firms, uh, the three firms, um, that are already looking at other cannabinoids and starting toxicology work on them. So I think just start the whole process all over again. That's it. But we'd be in a much better position because um, we've already dealt with a lot of the headaches with extraction from that substance. So THC, for example, that whole issue of what is a controlled substance and how much you can have in a product would be, you know, in 12 months, I think will be resolved. Um, So then it'll be just back to the old days of, okay, we need to do a novel food submission on that compound. We need to prove that it's safe. Um, and, And like I said, you know, the science is evolving massively. You know, we're already at sort of 900 publications a year last year. Um, and I just see that exponential growth. Uh, and the more, more knowledge we get, it'll build into things like, you know, where, where can it be used efficaciously? You know, it might be useful in pain. It definitely has antioxidant effects, but we know too much of something can suppress adaptive mm-hmm. responses. So, you know, it's finding, you know, what's the right dose response. And I think that's, that's where we'll be more evidence um and more clarity basically in 12 months which is good for the industry my my, my feeling on it is um anything that is is when you really look at what why the consumer's using it and i know there's a trench of um, reasons why consumers do come back and say they use cbd but when i get stuck into that whole area of pain or you know soreness niggles and i think back to our conversation before we went recording about you and i getting older and, and what we <laughs> the niggles we picked up i just can't think of anything uh, potentially more important if you really nut it into the benefit the consumers are looking for and if there is a solution in there or if there's an evolution of the solutions within the, the entourage or the other cannabinoid um, the other sort of um, 
substances, then I think that's something really interesting is the, the issues of pains, niggles, soreness, and the importance of keeping people active so they can go out there and exercise. It's never been more profoundly important now more than ever as we're in a massive sort of health crisis, health pandemic rather than the COVID uh, coronavirus pandemic as such. So Yeah, I think, I think that's where sort of um, another reason the CBD side has taken off so strongly. So, you know, we see a lot of like ex-rugby players um, where they've got injuries and they're probably used to using, um, you know, other, other forms of, you know, of, of pain relief. Um, and, and we've seen them use CBD and they've seen relief. Now, although the claim can't be made, we know that there's nothing more successful in, in you know, building a, a product's reputation if it's an effect you can feel. Now, if people can obviously feel that effect, just like with caffeine, um, just like with creatine, then you don't need to make a claim because people know. And the best advertising, and I've still not seen anything better than that, is word of mouth. Yeah. If your best friend tells you, I've took this for two weeks, or I've took this for a month, and my knees feel great, then it really doesn't matter whether it says it works or not on the label, um, those products are going to sell. So if there's efficacy there and a real effect you can feel, then that that's fantastic for the market, really. Yeah, brilliant. I think we should we should leave it there. Um, I just the, the last thing I want to say is um, for those that don't necessarily follow you, or I mean, I'm not suggesting everyone should bombard you with LinkedIn requests, <laughs> but you are particularly active on LinkedIn, and I do love it when I see you've made a comment because um, written text can be can be viewed in various different ways. Sometimes the worst form of medium to make a point, but when I do read some of your comments, it does make me chuckle. <laughs> a lot because they're quite straight to the point um and you call out i saw a brilliant one this week where you basically said i think you need to go back to somebody who helped to innovate that because you've gone and put something in it's uh, i think it was the valerian roots i think or something it, like yeah. that which is crazy does anyone ever reply to you and go mark just want to say thanks holy crap i didn't realize that i need to sort that out does everyone yeah some of like- them do i mean yeah some some come back and say i, I just try and be honest with people and it frustrates me because you, you just know that they've been, you know, misinformed. And, and for me, LinkedIn is sort of a public forum. They're still advertising. You know, people still forget that this is a health claims thing. It's not only business, you know, people. We're business people, but we're also consumers. And in that whole area has not even been looked at. But I won't go down that rabbit hole. But, yeah, I mean, I try and sort of give a bit of free information out. But pr- practical information of saying, look, my experience is this. Here's some, free, here's some free information. You know, I'm not going to charge you 250 pounds for this consultation. Yeah. There's some free information. Um, why don't you try applying that to the product? Um, you know, but I think people look at it, God, Mark's had a really bad weekend. Monday's come round. He's just shredded this guy on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, but it's, it's really not that. I do try to engage. And, you know, if people sort of say, you know, yeah, that would be interesting. You know, ask, you know tell me a bit more about this or then, you know, that's, that's what it's about, really. Try and actually give some information and say, look, try and focus on this area um, and amend the product. Um, but, you know, yeah. No, it's perfect. And to be fair, I think that's what you do. And I read them and actually, well, when I see them, um, and I just think it is, there's a lot of free advice on there. Um, people can take it like anything, like, if, you know, their chimp might come out on their shoulder or they might take it negatively or what have you, because to some degree, an element of exposure but yeah. I, I would say it's not always like that because you, you're not overtly 
doing anything other than also providing advice. But there is a lot of positive comments you make as well. I just it, I just find it um, fascinating because actually, to, to me, there is a lot of good advice there. Um, and I just wondered if, and it's always a reminder, isn't it, of, of how people end up in that situation where they have launched the product and there's something in there that literally fundamentally shouldn't really be in there. You wonder how they've got to that point in the first place. But um, there you go. Mark, you've been um, a legend. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed that. Um, nice. We've gone on way too long than we, I've kept your time much too much, but you love talking about it. So that's Yeah, fine. I do. So <laughs> um, well, I hope everyone took some benefit from this. It's been a great episode. So um, I can't wait to see how this all evolves, not just the broader regulatory piece at food law, but CBD in One. particular, um, because it's going to be fascinating um, and some big dates coming up. So everyone should look out for that. So thanks for A big thank you to Mark today for his knowledge, his insight, and his overarching practical approach to helping us navigate the legal and regulatory framework that surrounds the nutrition industry today. I think there's a danger that so many of us can view this in a sort of a negative, a cynical, or a restrictive way in terms of how we do innovation and communicate new and great products to consumers. But yet having talked to Mark and on the contrary, listening to him, I really do see this as a way that brands can compete or be different to their competitors. I see this as an area that people can be better to be more creative, one, in terms of how they actually interpret the regulations and two, use the full area of the regulation claims and on whole claims to their advantage. And I think that's something people should really reflect on the teams that are at it specifically and the managers that exist just to ensure that you get the most from those working in this area because I feel like there's a lot of space that people can just do things maybe a bit differently. I think Mark also summarizes some really difficult areas such as CBD, which is relevant to quite a few of us, but also not on the face of it relevant to so many others. But yet, when it comes to certainly the UK and the submission of the novel food dossiers at the moment, it does represent a case study of submission around novel foods, which will undoubtedly be something that we'll compare to in other areas in the future. And the more that we can understand them in a simple and a practical fashion, the better will we will be for it. And Mark does an incredibly good job for that. And finally, I'd actually like to thank Mark for his honesty in the questioning I had around, I suppose, how he feels about the ethical approach and the dilemmas he might face in knowingly working with people who are non-compliant, but also trying to help people find what effectively are gray areas where I use the words carefully, but how brands might seek to get away with things based on an interpretation of where there's no clear right or wrong, but yet you might feel that we're pushing boundaries. And I think on reflection, that in itself is a very interesting area because in my touch in this space on a daily basis, I don't think there's many conversations you don't have in regulation where you don't encounter the description of a gray area and what is right or wrong. And therefore, it's something very relevant to all of us in terms of how we navigate that to the best of our ability, credibly, but again, to gain advantage versus others. So Mark, thank you for doing a great job. He's definitely a leader in, his, in this industry. Um, and he is definitely someone who shares his opinion vocally in the right avenues on LinkedIn, for example, and others that you should follow because in, in effect, he is offering a lot of great insight and advice to all of us 
on a daily basis. Admittedly, it's a, it's a long podcast today, but do you know what? It was worth every minute of it, I think, in terms of the content it provided. So I hope you got a, a lot from it. Um, I look forward to hearing feedback from many of you. Um, and it's just a reminder that we continue to drive great topics here on Inside the Four Walls. So keep listening, keep supporting, and we will be back again very shortly with some more headline podcasts and people and their stories very shortly.